This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we'd love to hear your story. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. We love telling you quirky stories from our history here on the show. And this one comes to you from Bill Bright a friend from New Hampshire. It's a story of the best, worst counterfeiter in American history. Emmerich Jutner, also known as Edward Mueller, who lived near Broadway and West 96th Street in Manhattan, eluded the counterfeiting laws from 1938 to 1948, longer than any other maker of the queer in American history. The first 63 years of Jutner's life were upright and respectable. Short, blue-eyed, white-haired, mustachioed, and blessed with a winning, if toothless, grin, Jutner had learned the rudiments of photo engraving in his native Austria. After emigrating to America at 13, he worked as a building superintendent while tinkering with numerous unsuccessful inventions. With his children grown, the newly widowed Jutner retired in 1937 to the Upper West Side, where he lived with his mongrel terrier. He worked as a junk man, picking up discarded appliances and old tires from vacant lots with a pushcart. But he wasn't making enough to live on and soon found himself nearing destitution. So, using his ancient engraving skills, he photographed a dollar bill and recorded the images on sensitized zinc plates, which he then etched in an acid bath. With a little retouching and a small hand press, he was ready to make more money by, well, making more money. The U.S. Secret Service, which has chased counterfeiters since 1865, protecting presidents became part of their mission only in 1901, first noticed Jutner's activity when a phony $1 silver certificate turned up at a cigar store on Broadway near 102nd Street. Even as the agency opened a new case file numbered 880, agents felt everything about the bill was unusual. No one in recent times had considered singles worth the trouble to counterfeit. More importantly, the bill was obviously laughably bad. While U.S. currency was printed on 75% cotton and 25% linen stock with red and blue fibers of various lengths embedded in the paper, Jutner had used cheap bond paper from some corner store. The numbers were fuzzy. Many of the letters were misshaped or illegible. Washington's portrait was, as the Secret Service itself reported, poorly executed. Washington's right shoulder blends with the oval background. The left eye is represented by a black spot. The right eye is almond-shaped. But the bogus singles kept turning up. Those that could be traced had been passed to the subway and elevated lines, and newspaper vendors, bartenders, and other small businesses that handled hundreds, if not thousands, of $1 bills daily. Jutner carefully passed his fakes only at busy times, such as rush hour on the subway. A five-cent fare paid with a phony dollar yielded a 95-cent profit. And as the Secret Service later learned, Jutner never spent a fake in the same store twice and passed only one or two bills a day. 
By December 1939, file 880 contained some 600 counterfeits. The bills grew worse with time. While touching up the plates, Juttner misspelled the president's name as W-A-H-S-I-N-G-T-O-N. Washington. Nonetheless, he kept passing bogus singles throughout World War II despite successive Treasury publicity campaigns. Apparently, many of those who found themselves holding a Juttner counterfeit kept it as a souvenir instead of turning it over to the government. By 1947, the Secret Service held over 5,000 of Juttner's phony singles. Yet, despite what New Yorker writer S. St. Clair McKelway called a manhunt that exceeded in intensity and scope any other manhunt in the chronicles of counterfeiting, Despite thousands of interviews and hundreds of thousands of flyers, the agency didn't have a clue to his identity. A few weeks before Christmas 1947, Juttner's apartment caught fire. New York's bravest, in extinguishing the blaze, piled the old man's junk in an alley where a sudden snowstorm buried it. The homeless old man stayed in Queens with his daughter while his apartment was being repaired. On January 13, 1948, several neighborhood youths noticed some 30 strange-looking $1 bills lying about the alley. Unlike countless businessmen who had accepted Juttner's signals, the kids instantly realized the bills were bogus. One of their parents took some to the West 100th Street Station House, where detectives identified them as counterfeit. The Secret Service quickly identified the tenant, whose singed furnishings had been dumped in the alley, and arrested Juttner when he returned to his apartment a few days later. Juttner had succeeded because he passed no more bogus singles than necessary for his survival, only knocking off a few bills whenever he needed food or help paying his $25 monthly rent. Blandly admitting everything, Juttner was sentenced to a year and a day and fined $1. He was released after four months to live with his daughter and her family. After McElway profiled him in The New Yorker, 20th Century Fox filmed Mr. 880, with Edmund Gwen, renowned as Chris Kringle in Miracle on 34th Street, in the title role. Juttner made more money from the film than he had as a counterfeiter. And great job on that, Robbie, and thanks to Bill Bright, our friend from New Hampshire, for delivering this story, and my goodness, We're not recommending this as a possible retirement hobby, but my goodness, one dollar at a time, not 20s, not hundreds, dollar at a time. This man had, if anything, great discipline. And what a great story. And we love telling, well, sort of funny stories. I mean, our whole team was laughing at this one. It was quite amusing. Bill Brake, thanks so much again, our friend from New Hampshire. And Emmerich Juttner's story, the best worst counterfeiter in American history, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we love bringing you stories from all across this great country about what people do for a living and their hobbies. Sometimes the two actually intersect. We read about a fellow named Michael Rafino in Southern California who spent more than a decade rowing gondolas on cruises and in races. And by the way, I've dabbled in kayaks, and I can barely get straight through a still lake. Mike, how did you get started as a gondolier? And tell us a bit about the gondola cruises that you offer. When I first started doing it, yeah, I had to get trained. You know, there's kind of a, a way to the style of rowing that you have to kind of figure out the, the physics of it and kind of the rhythm of it. Generally what happens, and this happened with me as well, is you go out on the water your first time, you try to row, and you just spin in a circle going nowhere, getting really frustrated. You know, the oar is only on one side of the boat the power and the steering comes from the same side of the boat. So you really have to learn to control going like hard left, slowly back to the right, hard left, slowly back to the right, hard left, slowly back to the right, and you get that rhythm down, and eventually you can go straight. But it does take a little bit of just spinning in a circle, being like, this is bull crap, I don't want to do this. Like, yeah, it's a little bit frustrating when you first learn. And then you have your, you know, you get trained for a while, You have your kind of like gondolier tests, you know, like one of the things we had to do is we had to like go under this bridge that has this opening that's not that, not like we go under the the pylons of the bridge and, you know, you have to be able to dock well and, and it's tough. I mean, there's still some things that happened. Uh, Last fall, we had a newer gondolier that was out with a crew and the wind picked up so bad that he just couldn't row the boat back. And so some of us more seasoned gondoliers had to row out get him and row the boat back for him it does take a little bit of getting used to in training but and the people that we have out you know people celebrating special occasions birthdays maybe a date we do a lot of engagements like i've seen a lot of people get engaged on my boat and which is really cool to see because usually it's something that no one has like a front row seat for Uh, and even sometimes we get to be involved in the actual process itself like we'll do a message in a bottle thing where it's like, you know, ahead of time, the groom will write out a little message and give it to us and we'll prepare a bottle. And later in the cruise, she'll see this bottle in the water and she'll pull the bottle out of the water. Lo and behold, there's a note. As she's reading the note, he drops down on one knee. Boom, there's a ring. It's really cool. It's where really- were you for me when I was engaged? Mine was so lame compared to that. Oh, my goodness. Where were you when I needed you? It's it, it you know it's it's funny like it, it sounds like a, a a cool idea but there's some there it doesn't always go smoothly <laughs> let me tell you there was this one guy I couldn't believe this I never had anything like this happen before but we're supposed to do a message and model we're waiting to do the thing at some point the guy turns back because you know we do it like they don't really know when we're gonna do the message and model thing we do it uh you know at a certain point in the cruise where there's spots in the harbor where there's not too much tide and not too much wind. So we're rowing to the spot, and he turns around and looks at me. He goes, do you have it? And I go, yes. And then she goes, have what? And he goes, nothing. We go later in the cruise, and we do the message in a bottle thing. She gets the message in a bottle. Of course, she says yes. They're all happy. And then like five minutes later, he looks back at me, and he goes, did I ruin it? And she looks back, and I'm like, what do you want me to say, man? Like, do you think... Do you think she's like so simple that, you know, that she would buy the, do you have what? 
oh, nothing? Well, obviously it's something if I know what he's talking about and I responded to it. And there's been a couple times where the bottle ended up in the water and, like, I have to make a couple of attempts to go get it. They don't always grab it out of the water right away. And, man, I had one person, one girl, I was like, oh, it looks like there might be a message in that bottle right there. Would you mind grabbing it? And she goes, I'm not touching that. It's garbage. <laughs> and the guy looks back at me and I'm like, tell her, like, oh, just grab it. It's okay. It's not garbage. Yeah, I'm out of here now. It's up to you, buddy. Did anyone ever, did any woman ever say no? You know, I have not had any no's, but uh, some other gondoliers have. The last thing you would want if the person ended up saying no would be to spend another half an hour sitting right next to them on a boat that there is no escape from. It's a long way back to the dock. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I haven't had it happen, but I've heard it's just... I mean, it's just miserable for everyone, including the gondolier. Like, <laughs> including the gondolier. So you're, you're a gondolier, or do you sing? Yes. Does the guy say, hey, I need this song, start singing, you know, Love Me Do, or I Will Always Love You, or Back That Thing Up, or whatever they ask you to sing? You know, we. so it's kind of uh, an interesting thing. There are some gondola kind of standards that we sing, but we really have to kind of be uh, careful with music licensing. You know, we can't sing everything you know so i i actually i sing uh original songs that i wrote a long time ago and then translated into italian and that's mostly what i sing just to kind of like keep myself covered from that kind of stuff i mean and i like them and i get really good feedback on the songs and it's italian so no one knows what i'm saying anyway but you know we sing like o solo mio and some of the kind of standards but mostly i personally sing originals for them Well, that's great. And let's talk about now, ultimately, a competitive strain in this comes out. It turns out gondoliers compete, and there's such a thing as gondola competitions. Uh, Talk about how you got into that, and how many people are doing this around the country? The number of people around the country that do it kind of varies depending on where we're having it. We're trying to have, like, every different gondola company host some year, so it's kind of been bouncing around a little bit. Three years ago, it was in Stillwater, Minnesota, and there was a little bit less of a turnout there. Last year, it was in Providence, and there was a huge turnout. The year before that, it was in Huntington, and there was a big turnout. So it just kind of depends on who's hosting it and who all can make the trip. Uh, But it originally started actually in Providence. The idea being in Venice, they actually have gondola races all the time. And we would like to grow the sport here to the point where the Italians invite us to compete in their competitions. Maybe in our lifetimes it could get to the Olympic level, which would be really cool. You know, in my lifetime, both dragon boat racing and curling have become Olympic events. Supposedly that beanbag game is on the way. So if that can do it, I feel like gondola can make it to the nationals or to the Olympics. But first we need to have international competitions. So the Providence people started it, I think, like eight years ago. And the first one was over there. I didn't go to that one. The next one was in Huntington. And I did compete in that one. And I got one medal. It was a bronze for the single distance. And that really kind of put fuel in me. Like, I'm an athlete. Like, I coach uh, boot camp classes. And I'm a yoga teacher. And when we started doing these competitions, I just really, really come to love the competitive aspect of it. Like, we're all friends. We all know each other. But just the 
you know, mostly what I do are the longer races. And I really like kind of the mental aspect of what goes into endurance racing. It's not like go as quick as you can and then it's done and then just relax and catch your breath. It's like you're going to be doing this for so long that you're going to get to the point where you feel miserable and you have to keep going. Or you want to quit and you have to keep going. Or it's going to really hurt and you have to keep going. And I like that. I like being in that headspace of like, you know, they have this phrase that we say, um, forte a la morte, which means strong till death. And it's like, look, you're going to row and you're either going to win or you're going to die from rowing. Our distance races end up being anything from 20 minutes to 45 minutes of just rowing and rowing and rowing. And I've started to love it more and more as we've had the competitions. I love forte till morte. I'm going to start using it myself. People can ask me what it means, and I can tell them of my heavy Italian dialect. Half of my family heritage uh, comes from Sicily. Oh, that's, yeah, our, our, uh, mine too. Oh, that's fantastic. And so to, for anybody who's endeavoring to do this and, and giving, it, uh, giving it a shot, what do you urge them to do and, and except to just go out and try it and have some fun? Yeah, I mean, definitely go out and try and have some fun. Like, I would say start with just learning the finesse of just regular rowing before race rowing. Like, you're really going to fall. You know, what's going to make you really fall in love with it is, like, the first time you see people get engaged on the boat in front of you. And you're like, I am a footnote. Well, you can go your whole life and, like, your best friends, your family, you may not ever really see that moment. But when they're doing it like right in front of you, like three feet away from you, you're hearing every word, you're seeing every expression. It's like a beautiful thing. You know, it's like a privilege to behold something like that. And as you get into the racing part of it, you know, as part of the, the physical aspect of it, most rowing, you're using like a lot of back muscles, a little bit of leg, but mostly you're sitting. You're standing upright for this. And because the oar never leaves the water, it's really a full body workout like like nothing I've ever experienced before. I mean, I've done all kinds of different races and obstacle courses and Spartan runs and something like that, and there's nothing quite like this. And there is nothing quite like it, and we've had very few interviews quite like this either. And you've been listening to Michael Rafino, and he's a gondola guy, a professional, and also a competitor. And you can find Mike online by searching for Run Wild Mike and learn more about the U.S. Gondola Nationals at usgondolanationals.com. Michael Rafino's story here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, as you well know, including lots of stories about history. And all of our history stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. If you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses, their Constitution 101 course, the best storytelling about a founding document the Constitution that I've ever seen. Go to hillsdale.edu to find it. That's hillsdale.edu. Our next story comes to us from a man who's simply known as the History Guy. His videos are watched by hundreds of thousands of people of all ages on YouTube, and he's been telling stories regularly here on Our American Stories. Here's the History Guy with the tale of an escaped slave-turned-legend. 
named Robert Smalls. Robert Smalls was born into slavery in 1839 in Beaufort, South Carolina. His mother was a slave, and his father's not known, although it may well have been his owner, Henry McKee. As a youth, McKee rented Robert out as a laborer, with McKee receiving the pay. Robert was fond of the sea, and so started taking work at the Charleston docks, first as a stevedore unloading ships and working the docks, and then on boats as a sailor or sailmaker or fisherman. Eventually, he came to know the waters of the Carolina coast well, and was a skilled boat pilot, even though slaves were not given that title. In 1856, Robert married another slave, a hotel maid named Hannah Jones. The couple was trusted enough to live apart from their owners, although the owners still took most of their pay. They had a daughter, and then a son, who died at the age of two. The Civil War started just out front his door, at Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor. The Confederacy recognized Robert's skill and pressed him into service as the wheelman aboard the CSS Planter a side-wheel steamer that had been converted into an armed dispatch boat. The planter delivered dispatches, troops, and supplies, as well as laid mines, then called torpedoes, to protect the harbor. Robert was a trusted member of the crew, and his piloting skills were valuable, given his knowledge and experience with the coast. But Robert, like almost any person who is being treated as property, wanted freedom. This was particularly important to him, as Hannah's owner was abusive, and he feared she might be sold away. He wished to buy her freedom, but did not have enough money. They had to escape, and in May 1862, he saw his chance. Smalls had noticed that the Confederate officers made a habit of leaving the ship at night, so he and the other eight slaves aboard hatched a plan. On May 12, 1862, the planter was docked in Charleston, carrying a load of four cannon that were intended to add to the city's defense. When, in the evening, the officers left the ship, Smalls and the crew took the boat, met that their families at a prearranged spot in the harbor, and fled to the Union blockade. This was no simple feat. Had they been caught, they would all certainly have been executed. The harbor was well defended, with five Confederate harbor forts, each capable of destroying the boat. But Smalls knew all the proper signals, and even impersonated the captain standing at the front of the boat. Once free of the harbor, they lowered the Confederate flag and put up a white sheet, hoping the ships of the Union blockade would see it. Yet they were still nearly fired upon by the Federal blockade fleet, as the captain of the armed clipper USS Onward, seeing the Confederate gunboat, ordered the guns to ready. But a crewman with binoculars saw Smalls and his compatriots waving frantically from the deck. Once the captain of the Onward boarded the planter, Smalls reportedly asked if they had a Union flag for the ship to fly. Incredibly, Smalls' audacious plan allowed him to not only steal a Confederate warship from a well-defended port and deliver it as a prize to the Union, but also to deliver nine families from slavery. Smalls became a hero in the Union, but the Confederacy put a $4,000 bounty on his head. His knowledge of the Charleston defenses was invaluable, and he immediately went into the service of the Union Navy, acting as the pilot aboard a number of vessels, including aboard the now USS Planter. Having laid mines for the Confederacy, he now helped to remove them. An 1883 naval report noted that he participated in 17 Civil War battles and engagements, including serving as pilot of the ironclad USS Keokuk, during the disastrous attack on Charleston, April 7th of 1863, where the ship was savaged by Fort Sumter's guns. The heavily damaged ship was able to withdraw under her own power, 
due in large part to Small's considerable piloting skills. In December of 1863, he was back aboard USS Planter when the steamer got caught in a crossfire between Union and Confederate troops near Folly Island. The captain of the boat, James Nickerson, panicked and ordered the boat to surrender. But Smalls refused, knowing that he and the other black sailors would face execution if they were captured. He took command and was able to navigate the boat outside the Confederate guns. For his heroism, he was made captain of the Planter, the first black man to command a United States ship. During the war, he engaged in other heroics as well. He was instrumental in convincing Abraham Lincoln and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton to allow the recruitment of black troops into the Union Army, and helped to recruit former slaves for the 1st Volunteer South Carolina Regiment, one of the first black regiments. He supported efforts to raise money to educate former slaves, and himself achieved literacy. He was voted an unofficial delegate to the Republican National Convention in 1864. Also that year, when he was forced to give up his seat to a white passenger on a Philadelphia streetcar, he left the car rather than sit in the open overflow platform. That small act of rebellion helped to motivate the state of Pennsylvania to integrate public transportation in 1867. Following the war, Smalls was a delegate to the 1868 South Carolina Constitutional Convention. He was elected to the State House of Representatives and then to the State Senate, and in 1874, was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. But this was a brutal era in U.S. politics, where anti-Reconstructionists frequently used violence and intimidation, often through shadow organizations of the Democrats, such as the Ku Klux Klan and the South Carolina Red Shirts. Thirty-five African-American officials were murdered by such organizations during the period of Reconstruction. Small's life was threatened by a group of armed Red Shirts at a political rally in 1876. Over his long political career, he had endured threats of violence, false and trumped-up charges, and open intimidation of voters. The young man who escaped slavery by audaciously stealing a warship never faltered in the face of adversity. Escaping because he could not afford to purchase his wife's freedom, after the war he used some of the money awarded by the Union as a prize for the capture of the CSS planter to purchase his former owner's home. The young hero who played a pivotal role in incorporating black soldiers into the Federal Army was eventually a major general in the South Carolina militia. In 2004, when the U.S. Army named a massive, best-in-class logistic support vessel, the USAV Major General Robert Smalls became the first U.S. Army vessel to be named after an African-American. Through it all, he faced terrible threats and discrimination. In the end, he even had to fight for his pension Despite being the first black captain of a United States ship, he had never actually officially been commissioned. Because of the color of his skin, he had technically served throughout the war, including 17 engagements, as a civilian. Robert Smalls died of diabetes in 1915 at the age of 75. The inscription on his monument is a quotation from a statement he made to the South Carolina legislature in 1895. My race needs no special defense. For the past history of them in this country proves them to be the equal of any people, anywhere. All they need is an equal chance in the battle of life. And a special thanks to the History Guy if you'd like to subscribe to his YouTube channel, and I urge you to do it. It's the History Guy. History deserves to be remembered, and thanks to Greg Hengler for the production on the piece. And my goodness, what final words. My race needs no special defense. For the past history of them in this country proves them to be the equal 
of any people anywhere. All they need is an equal chance in the battle of life. And we tell a lot of stories here on this show, and particularly the iniquities perpetuated by this country on African Americans. Uh, it's storytelling that needs to be remembered and told, and we do it here because we tell all the stories of this country, some good and not so good, and Robert Small's ability to triumph despite these difficulties. My goodness, if any one of us could walk in his shoes and do the same. Robert Small's story, here on Our American Stories. And we continue here on Our American Stories, and we tell all sorts of stories from all walks of life here on this show, as you know. Some of the stories are inspiring, we hope. Some are pretty tough. And some, like this one, well, they're a mixture of both. Here's retired Navy SEAL Senior Chief Petty Officer Jimmy Hatch speaking frankly to some U.S. Naval Academy midshipmen about what happened to him after being wounded in action. My life was being a Navy SEAL. That's all I wanted to do. I, I didn't realize the extent of my commitment to it until afterwards when I could no longer do it. And uh, the way my career, uh, as I call it, ended um, was not the easiest way to go. It really, really uh, was difficult. It was a hostage rescue mission. We were trying to rescue that young kid, uh, Bo Bergdahl, that's been in the news a bit. Couldn't see the guys. I knew there were people out there. Uh, in a hostage rescue mission, you can't just shoot people. <laughs> you got to see who's who in the zoo. It's at night. Uh, the visibility wasn't very good. And we used the dog to find those guys. And the dog found them. And the only w way I knew that they were hostile was I saw one guy shoot the dog in the head. Um, at that point, I could see with the muzzle flash that he was armed, so I started uh, filling him in, as it were, shooting him. And his buddy panicked, like they always do, uh, because they suck. And he sprayed, and uh, thank God he didn't hit the other two guys that were with me. Um, but he hit me, and he didn't have the decency to hit me in the body armor that I had to wear all the time. So, blew my femur out of the back of my leg, tossed me in the air, and I'm in the air, and I'm thinking, don't scream, don't scream, don't scream. Hit the ground. What did I do? It hurts so bad. And I felt bad for years. I felt like such a weak individual for screaming. But, man, it was powerful. At that point, I transitioned. I didn't know it, but I became an observer, uh, a witness, as it were, to my crew and their spirit and their strength. Guys had to finish the gunfight. I couldn't put my tourniquet on myself because when I tried to do it, it would, my femur would twist and I would scream some more, which is bad. I wasn't really useless. I was actually a hazard. Because if you got a guy that's screaming around you, they just got to throw grenades in the direction of that guy, right? It was bad. I didn't want to scream anymore. So I didn't put my tourniquet on until the gunfight was over. Two uh, people who had been to an advanced Army medic school heard me on the radio or heard on the radio that I'd been hit. And they came from different parts of the target uh, over open ground, having to shoot people to get to me. And they went to work on me and saved me. I got flown out, medevaced. Um, 
sat there with the dog at my feet when the helicopter flew us out. Um, and this is the first time where I'm in the company of other people who had gotten hurt. And I realized as I'm laying there that I'm not hurt that bad. That there were people on that plane being medevac with me that were severely hurt. People that didn't look like humans anymore. They were wrapped up in gauze and they had hoses running in and out of them. These little things were etched on my hard drive. These are things that I had to deal with later. One night I stuck a gun in my mouth after I'd gotten treatment to get my leg healed up. I stuck a gun in my mouth in front of my wife, which is pathetic. I know how to use a gun. If I wanted to die, I'd be dead, right? It was a cry for help. I had become addicted to the pain meds and I was washing them down with Stoli's vodka, just a tip. Don't do that, it's not a good way to go. Put a gun in my mouth in front of my wife. My wife was scared to death. She got the gun away from me. She immediately called my unit. My unit said, call the police, we can't get there quick enough. She called the police, told them exactly who I was in the world and what I've been doing for the majority of my life, and that I was going nuts. And those guys came to my house, they knew who I was, they knew I had guns and knives. Uh, they had every right to at least give me a good tasing or a beating, you know? They de-escalated the situation. They kept me calm uh, until my crew got there. My crew put me in a car, took me to the Naval Hospital, uh, where I agreed to go to the fifth floor, which is the psych ward. I was humiliated. Um, I needed help, but I didn't know how to get it. I had alienated myself and pushed myself away from people. So there I am sitting in the hospital in my purple pajamas with a towel this big so I don't hang myself. And I'm embarrassed. I was a team leader on a SEAL team. I had over 150 direct action combat missions. I'd been in a lot of gunfights. I was proud of what I had done. And now I'm sitting in the psych ward with kids working there that are just have been in the Navy a year or two that are like babysitting me. I was so embarrassed. And uh, my crew came to see me. And I was embarrassed and I didn't want them to come see me. I never once realized how fortunate I was to that point in my life. Um, quick tip, though. If you're ever in the psych ward, and God, I hope you'd ever have to go there. Uh, don't do this. So my buddies came to see me. I'm, in, I'm a big skydiver. They bring these skydiving magazines in, and they hand them to me across the table. One of the young uh, people that worked in the psych ward came over and said, Sir, we've got to take those magazines from you. And I said, well, why? And they said, well, i got staples in them. And you could hurt people with those staples. And I said, if you think I need staples to kill everybody in this room, you're one that's crazy. Don't ever do that. <laughs> Never do that. Do not threaten the staff in the psych ward. Huh? You'll probably get a good shot, and you're going to stay there like I did a few extra days. So uh, while I sat there, my buddies had gone to work um, trying to figure out what they were going to do to me. People at my unit, uh, very senior people, uh, were involved in my personal little saga. And it wasn't like their bandwidth wasn't full of other things, like other combat missions and other things going on with other people in the unit. But they showed me their value. I could not deny that they valued me because they committed so much to making sure that I got better. The same guy who saved my life in combat, he flew me, rented a car, and drove me to this psych hospital. See, you get a lot of medals in gunfights when you save people's lives. You don't get any medals for driving your buddy to the psych hospital. That's a true commitment. Why would he do that? Because he cared about me. I had value, right? So I'm checking in to the hospital, and they're going through my bag like I'm a felon. I'm offended by this because I'm a tough guy. 
Navy SEAL commando. And I look at my buddy and I said, hey, man, I'm not doing this. I'm running. There's no way. He said, well, look, first of all, you can't run anymore. (laughs) What a jerk, right? (laughs) Yeah, thanks for that, buddy. And secondly, you need to do this. You need to do this for yourself and for your family and for the rest of us that are coming down the road. And he was right. When somebody saves your life, you owe them a couple things. One, you can't disrespect them. And two, you can't make the efforts that they extended on your behalf a waste. So at that point, I realized that I was going into this hospital. It was a great thing for me. I spent a lot of time in that hospital. I think it was close to uh, four and a half months. And why it was great for me was that I realized that you don't have to be in combat to have traumatic things happen. This was the turning point for me, one of the major ones. I'm in a group session. There are professional people from the civilian world in this group session with me. And they'd all been through tough stuff. And we're going around, we're talking about these things, and we get to a young woman, she's probably 30 years of age. And she said, when I was 11 years old, two of my uncles raped me in front of my father on Christmas Eve. What do I say to that? I've got problems. I got shot in the leg on a mission I volunteered for with a group of people that I loved. And I'm feeling sorry for myself. And this young woman is in here brawling with this. What do you think she thinks every year at Christmas Eve? That was a turning point for me. Life's combat, man. You don't have to be a Navy SEAL to have things happen to you that are difficult. Your people don't have to be combat people to have things happen to them that are going to make them go nuts. So I graduate from this uh, little hospital, and I go home, uh, and I continue to get treatment, seek a counselor. I get retired from the service. The point with all that is that I didn't want help. I didn't want people to think I was weak. I didn't want people to know that I was suffering. I didn't want to suffer. And for a long time, I wished I'd have died that night. Because, you know, nobody hates dead people, right? You don't snore. You don't cause problems. They name a chow hall after you. It's all cool, right? I didn't know what I was going to be anymore. My buddies injected themselves into my life over and over, and they, they forced me to know that I was valued. Sometimes the word stigma is used. You know, there's a stigma with getting involved in people's lives. I call it cowardice. I watched my buddies, same guys who saved me in a gunfight overseas, I watched them save me again. They pushed through it. They weren't embarrassed. They knew that I needed help. It was that simple. And they were going to patch me up again. So I hope, if you guys are ever in the position where you see that somebody's having a difficult time, you realize that maybe being embarrassed is the biggest risk if you confront them about it but it's probably worth it. And what a story, and thanks to Navy SEAL Senior Chief Petty Officer Jimmy Hatch for sharing that story. And there's a stigma that comes along with mental illness and with soldiers. Oh, my goodness. How many times do you say the word, I was embarrassed? I was a team leader, and now I'm sitting in the psych ward. I was embarrassed, he said. Never once did I realize how fortunate I was. Brother, I love the line, you don't get any medals driving your buddy to the psych ward. And it's so true. My life was being a Navy SEAL. The way my career ended, it was really difficult. And so many men who fight for us, right? who fight for all of us, that's the case. And he came back, and my goodness, did he have troubles adjusting. And it took that one girl's story to turn everything around. 
having to deal with being raped by uncles in front of her father, and he thought, what the heck am I complaining about? How lucky I am. I did something I volunteered for, surrounded by people I loved. And my goodness, having those good people around him to help him through this difficult time. And now he's got a mission. He has a nonprofit that has a lot to do with helping prepare working dogs for life in the working world. Navy SEAL Senior Chief Jimmy Hatch's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to innovation and business, and everything in between, including your story. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll listen to them, and we'll put them up on the air. They're some of our best stories, and your stories are the hour in Our American Stories. And this next story, well, it's straight out of the history books, and we love telling stories about America's past. Annie Oakley was a shooting star, a magician whose magic wand was a gun. Right-handed, left-handed, on a horse, through a mirror, she couldn't miss. At a time when women were only expected to fire up the oven, Annie Oakley fired her way to fame as the world's greatest sharpshooter. In her personal life, she was a sharpshooter as well. She was devoted to her marriage and to her faith. It is no wonder that Annie Oakley inspired scores of books, and movies, and the Broadway musical Annie Get Your Gun. Here's Faith Garcia with the story of Annie Oakley. Late in 1865, a fierce blizzard swept into western Ohio. Phoebe Ann Moses, the fifth surviving child from a poor Quaker farming family, waited for her beloved father to walk home from the mill. 15 miles away. It wasn't until midnight when Jacob Moses finally returned. His hands were frozen solid, his speech gone. He never recovered and died a few months later. Phoebe Ann, or Annie, was just five years old. The family soon lost the farm. Bills piled up. They were destitute. To ease the burden, Annie's mother, Susan, had to sell the family farm and pet cow just to pay the medical and funeral bills. Here's grandniece of Annie Oakley, Bess Edwards. Annie stepped in and she saved the family. They were hungry. Rather than be hungry, what are you going to do? If you have a talent like hers, you make use of it just as fast as you can, and she did. The eight-year-old Annie took it upon herself to provide food for her family, who now leased a smaller farm. She reached for her deceased father's Kentucky rifle hanging above the fireplace 
rested the barrel on the porch railing, and shot her first small game, a squirrel. I was eight years old when I took my first shot, and I still consider it one of the best shots I ever made, Annie Oakley. In spite of Annie's efforts, her family's financial situation worsened, forcing her mother to place the children with friends and neighbors. Ten-year-old Annie moved into a shelter for the destitute. Here, she learned to sew and embroider, a skill she would practice for the rest of her life when she wasn't shooting. Soon, she was hired out to work as a live-in helper for a family in a neighboring county. Here's Old West historian Virginia Scharf, Annie Oakley biographer Shul Casper, and Paul Fees, former senior curator at the Buffalo Bill Historical Center in Cody, Wyoming. Everyone thought this was going to be an improvement, but it turned out to be absolutely nightmarish situation. She never mentioned their name again in the rest of her life. She referred to them as the wolves. They locked her in closets. They worked her half to death. One day, the farmer's wife, the wolf, Mrs. Wolf, throws her out in the snow because she fell asleep while she's doing some darning. Suddenly, the she-wolf struck me across the ears, threw me out into the deep snow, and locked the door. I had no shoes on. I was slowly freezing to death. So I got down on my knees, looked toward God's clear sky, and tried to pray. But my lips were frozen stiff, and there was no sound. They told her folks, in fact, they told her mother that she didn't want to go home. And they told her that uh, her mother didn't want her back. After three miserable years, in 1872, 12-year-old Annie Moses could bear it no more. She ran away, slipping into a crowded railroad car and escaped home to her mother in Greenville, Ohio. Susan Moses had remarried, but the family was still desperately poor and a mortgage loomed over their heads. Instead of going to school, Annie taught herself to shoot. With her father's old cap and ball rifle, she headed for the woods to hunt. There, in what she called the fairy places, she began her lifelong love for the great outdoors. Annie preferred moving targets to sitting ones. It gave them a fair chance, she'd reasoned, and made me quick of eye and hand. Soon, she was selling hampers of quail to Katzenberger's general store in Greenville. Young Annie was now the family breadwinner earning a living with her gun. Here's historian Mary Stang. She was a market hunter and turning a very nice profit. Certainly not something that was at all appropriate for a woman to be doing in that time and place. Eventually, she saved up enough money to pay off the $200 mortgage on the family farm, and her prowess with a shotgun was becoming known around Greenville. Annie wasn't just good for a girl. She was good for anybody. Here's Annie Oakley biographer, Glenda Riley. Annie was exceptionally good. Her father had given her instructions. He was the one that told her, always shoot game through the head so that you didn't spoil the meat. By her late teens, Annie had won so many turkey shoots that she was barred from entering them. In the 1870s, shooting well was an important skill for a man, and shooting contests were a favorite spectator sport. Sharpshooters traveled the country, betting on their ability to perform feats of marksmanship and challenging all comers. Here's firearms historian R.L. Wilson. 
Shooting was of such immense uh, popularity that there were professionals. Doc Carver, evil spirit of the plains is what he was called. Captain Bogardus, who eventually had four sons who traveled with him. And people were flocking to see shooters like this. One such shooter was Frank Butler, an Irish immigrant in his mid-20s who was starting to make a name for himself on the vaudeville circuit. He was passing through southern Ohio one fall, claiming he could outshoot anyone around. And when we come back, we'll pick up this story, how Annie meets Frank Butler, and so much more. The story of Annie Oakley, here on Our American Stories. to the story of Annie Oakley, this world-class female shooter, and the story of a world-class shooter, Frank Butler, who just happened to be passing through Southern Ohio, claiming he could outshoot anybody. Let's return to Faith. Here again is Oakley biographer Cheryl Casper. Frank is staying in a hotel in Cincinnati, and he starts talking with a bunch of farmers. The farmers say, hey, we have someone in our county who's a really good shot, and we're going to bet 100 bucks that this person can beat you. Here again is R.L. Wilson, Paul Fees, and Virginia Scharf. Frank Butler, this already professional shootist, shows up for this match with hundreds of people watching. And who is it that uh, comes as his opponent but a, a 15-year-old girl who was only uh, five feet tall and weighed 100 pounds? I almost dropped dead when a little slim girl in short dresses stepped out to the mark with me. I was a beaten man the moment she appeared. Right then and there, I decided if I could get that girl, I would do it. Frank Butler, 1924. They shot evenly. 25 for 24 birds and on the 25th bird he missed uh, but he was a very gracious loser he uh, he thanked her for the match complimented her on her skill and then courted her for a year <laughs> there's a charming little girl she's many miles from here she's a loving little fairy you'd fall in love to see her her presence would remind you of an angel in the skies and you bet I love this little girl with the raindrops in her eyes. Frank Butler, 1881. He was in his 20s when they met. She was 15, and yet within a year, they were married. He made himself appear safe to her. He clearly admired her. He sparked and courted her as few of us have ever been sparked or courted and every one of us would like to be by someone. And she was lucky to find him, and I think he knew he was lucky to find her. For the next six years, however, while Butler and his shooting partner John Graham performed on the vaudeville circuit, Annie stayed in the background. That was about to change. The story is that Butler's partner, a fellow named Graham, was ill, and she was called up as a member of the audience. 
and was so obviously good at it and so charming and such a novelty to the audience that Graham was never heard of again. At some time, she adopted the name Oakley as a stage name, and nobody knows why. And uh, Butler and Oakley became a shooting sensation. From that day to this, I have not competed with her in public shooting. She outclassed me. Frank Butler, 1925. When the shooting team of Butler and Oakley hit the road, traveling entertainment was in its heyday. Circuses, theater companies, and vaudeville acts traveled the country, playing venues from outdoor arenas to smoky saloons. For Frank and Annie, it was an exhausting life of noisy train rides, seedy hotels, and one-night stands. Their shooting act might be sandwiched in between a body songstress and a scantily clad acrobat. Here's theater historian Don Wilmoth. Variety was a largely male-oriented form of entertainment. There was a great deal of double entendre and comedy. Uh, there were suggestive lyrics and songs. Uh, and there was a good deal of semi-nudity. The acts could be a tad salacious. It was the Victorian age. Annie Oakley, the Christian girl from Ohio, feared being thought a loose woman. She resolved to set herself apart, both in manner and in dress. She began wearing an outfit that completely covered her body, a calf-length skirt, long sleeves and leggings, and a hat that sparkled with a silver star. Her look became her trademark, and this costume, though distinctive and eye-catching, was as modest as Annie's attitude towards her talent. Here's Old West historians Joy Casson and Roger McGrath. She made her own costumes. That was very important to her. It was part of her desire to control her self-presentation. She could move easily in them, and yet she looked, uh, she looked respectable. She looked childlike. Women in the West were just like the men, enterprising, courageous, bold, adventurous, intelligent. The West really selected and filtered people. The women had to be all those things the men were in spades because they were doing most of the things the men were but lacked the same degree of physical prowess. The women in the West were simply the very best America had to offer. And what better example of that than Annie Oakley? Frank soon realized that Annie was the main attraction of Butler and Oakley. In a remarkable reversal of 19th century roles, Frank Butler became Annie Oakley's assistant. I think Frank Butler understood that she had a kind of star quality that he didn't want to overshadow. And Frank Butler didn't have a problem with that. I think he adored her. I think he also was a savvy businessman who understood that she was pretty, she was ladylike, she was petite. She would do what needed to be done to make that rise to the top. And he didn't want to get in her way. As a matter of fact, he understood that for the two of them, the best thing possible was for to let her take the lead. In 1884, Butler and Oakley landed a 40-week job with Sells Brothers Circus, one of the biggest traveling shows in the country. Finally, they had steady work with a clean, family-oriented show. But circus life was hard, and the pay unreliable. When the season ended in New Orleans that December, 
it looked as if Frank and Annie would have to go back to a life of one-night stands and unsavory characters. And the circus season is ending the very week that Buffalo Bill's Wild West comes to New Orleans. And it's like, wow, the circus is ending, we need a job. So they ask Cody if they can come on with the show. To Annie, it was a dream job. Buffalo Bill's Wild West show was a lavish historical pageant, part melodrama, part circus, and part rodeo. And it featured the finest performers in the country. It offered a taste of the life on the old frontier to an America that was rapidly industrializing. In the crowded urban centers of the East, people flocked to Buffalo Bill's show, eager for a glimpse of the Wild West. This spectacle was the forerunner of Western movies and TV programs. The whole world was fascinated with the West. And as it was becoming settled, those elements that were seen as the foundation of, uh, of America's uniqueness, um, the rugged individualism and um, the adventure and the conflict with Indians and with, um, and with Buffalo seemed to be coming to an end. Uh, Buffalo Bill was a representative, a living representative of that story, of that adventure. And it's that adventure that he put into his Wild West show. Audiences saw the real stagecoach. They saw real soldiers. They saw real Indians and cowboys. There were horses. There were steer. There were live buffalo. It was into this roiling microcosm of the Wild West that Annie Oakley, the little girl from Ohio, first stepped in April 1885. Cody placed her low on the bill, but she soon became an audience favorite. Her 10-minute program combined Frank's vaudeville experience with her talents as a sharpshooter, athlete, and actress. The result distinguished her from other shooters. Annie didn't just aim a gun and fire, she performed. Here again is Cheryl Casper. Miss Annie Oakley! She tripped into the arena. She didn't walk in. She blew kisses. She waved. She was like animated, alive, like this sweet person, but with this big bang gun. And when we return, we'll continue with this remarkable story. And by the way, that Frank Butler did what he did, making himself second fiddle. Well, Desi Arnaz would do the same thing with Lucille Ball. And of course, George Burns would do it with his bride. Smart men. And by the way, we love doing these rips from history. And as always, all the things we do related to history are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. A great place to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And when we come back, We'll continue with the story of Frank Butler and, of course, Annie Oakley.
And we continue with the story of Annie Oakley, and we left off finding out how blessed and lucky she was to have someone like Frank Butler, who recognized her talents and just got out of the way and supported her. My goodness, even today, that's a hard thing to find. But back then, my goodness, practically impossible. Let's continue with this terrific story. Here again is Cheryl Casper, R.L. Wilson, and Paul Fees. She starts off slow, one ball, two balls. Glass balls, which when they're hit, uh, they explode and feathers uh, fly out. Frank would toss up one, and then two at a time, and then three at a time. Then Annie Oakley would toss them up herself. She'd toss two or three or four target balls in the air, grab a shotgun, shoot two, grab another, shoot two more. She could hit all three before any one of them would reach the ground. Then she'd go to six. Her act gets faster and faster and faster and faster until, you know, it's just like boom, boom. Things are just uh, being broken all around. She could shoot with her left hand, with her right hand. She, like, turns her gun upside down or sideways or sighting in the mirror. One of her favorite tricks was to have Frank hold a, a playing card up and she could uh, either shoot through the heart when it was flat against her or if it was held sideways she could split the card in two which is a pretty amazing shot occasionally she'd miss a shot on purpose and then she'd kind of pout and this was part of the act because she she could always hit the target she was somebody who never missed I think it's an innate skill. She said, you know, nobody ever taught me to shoot. I think it was just a love of a gun was just born in me. It was an instinct and a skill and an ability that only persons who have phenomenal vision, have a wonderful sense of timing, who have hand-to-eye coordination, who have good balance, and who are really very athletic, because a really good shot has to be a really good athlete. Once Annie's act started getting rave reviews, Buffalo Bill Cody quickly moved her to the top of the bill. That season, 150,000 people in 40 cities across America saw something entirely new. A woman who could shoot as well as any man while conveying a youthful innocence. That, whether Annie realized it or not, was sexy. Here's Old West historian Elliot West. She was this really uh, remarkable, uh, remarkable uh, shot. Uh, but what makes her especially interesting is that she was able to combine that with, a, uh, with an image, with a kind of a vision of American womanhood that was provocative, but that many people felt comfortable with. She handles a shotgun with an easy familiarity that causes the men to marvel and the women to assume airs of contented superiority. Springfield, Massachusetts, Republican, 1897. She had some sort of magnetism that, uh, that can only come from within. In private, she was quiet and reserved, but in public, she could reach the masses. Annie Oakley's celebrity grew when the Wild West spent the summer of 1886 in an arena on Staten Island. Half a million people sailed past the new Statue of Liberty then rode on special trains straight to the Wild West. It was the most popular attraction ever seen in New York, and Annie was now becoming as famous as Buffalo Bill himself. 
Frank became Annie's press agent, playing on the deep fascination Easterners had with the Old West. He advertised his Ohio-born wife as the girl of the Western Plains, and he never tired of telling the story of the night Chief Sitting Bull, the old Sioux warrior, asked if he could adopt Annie after watching her shoot the Ace of Hearts out of a card at 30 paces. Here's historian Donald Fixico. When Sitting Bull first saw him, she had these amazing abilities, you know, to, uh, to handle a rifle and her keen eyesight. Then obviously she had some endowed power of some sort that he recognized immediately. When Indian people look at such individuals that have been empowered like that, then we have the greatest respect. Sitting Bull christened his new daughter, Little Sure Shot. For a time, he toured with Annie in Buffalo Bill's show, but the great chief soon left, saying he had grown sick of the noises and the multitudes of men. When Buffalo Bill's Wild West opened in Madison Square Garden in the fall of 1886, Little Sure Shot became the darling of Manhattan. She performed before 6,000 people, many in evening dress. The mistreated, half-starved little girl from Ohio had become an icon of the American West. Here again is Virginia Scharf. It was probably never a woman in the history of the United States who was better equipped to take up the challenge of creating a legend, of creating a myth of the Western woman, and then embodying that myth with the kind of ladylike demeanor that would make her acceptable. It is a remarkable creation in American legend. In March 1887, Cody's Wild West troops sailed from New York Harbor bound for London to perform at Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee. Their ship was a veritable Noah's Ark. The hold was packed with horses, buffalo, elk, and mules. Dozens of American Indians huddled together, bracing for the first ocean voyage of their lives. Clustered in the bow were Buffalo Bill, Annie, and Frank Butler, but also Cody's new discovery, 15-year-old Lillian Smith, a sharpshooting sensation from California. Here again is R.L. Wilson. Lillian Smith was an expert with a rifle, so much so that Cody himself had said he would pay $10,000 to anybody who beat Lillian Smith at rifle shooting. She and Annie couldn't have been more different. Whereas Annie was modest, ladylike, and reserved, Lillian flaunted her ample figure and liked to brag. Even before they reached London, Lillian had been boasting. Now that I'm with the Wild West, Annie Oakley is done for. Lillian Smith tended to speak very coarsely, and she was uh, kind of rakish. She liked to hang around with the cowboys. And she had this bodice that said, champion rifle shot of the world. It was clear that the Wild West wouldn't be big enough for the both of them. Here again is Cheryl Casper and Paul Fees. Lillian Smith really shows how competitive Annie is. She's worried because Lillian's 15 years old, Annie is 26 now. Suddenly, when you start reading the press releases, Annie becomes younger than she has been. She now starts telling people she's born in 1866. Now she's 20 and she's more, she can compete a little easier with this new girl in the Wild West show. She's practical, she does what she needs to survive. To Annie Oakley, life was a battle. 
she uses those terms, the battle of life. Uh, it wasn't something that you skated through easily. It's something you went out and did constant battle. Just about everything she did, she felt she had to work harder than, uh, than anybody to accomplish. On May 9, 1887, when the Wild West show opened in London, Oakley and Smith were given equal billing. 10,000 eager spectators clamored to get in. The crush and fight and struggle to reach the gates was something terrific, reported the London Evening News. In attendance were leading British intellectuals, such as playwright Oscar Wilde, and many of the crowned heads of Europe. Here again is Elliot West. The English were fascinated by America as a place where you could escape the traps of the modern industrial world. They saw America as a place of uh, wide open spaces, a place of uh, the free individual uh, in the wilderness. And I think Cody's Wild West show and Annie Oakley herself spoke to that mixed appeal of America to the English. And when we come back, the final installment of this remarkable story, and you can picture just about everything here. Superb job by our team. When we come back, the rest of the story, the final part of Annie Oakley's story here on Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories and the final installment of the Annie Oakley story. Let's pick up where we last left off. Here again is Mary Stang and Paul Feese. Annie particularly was a figure that Europeans welcomed because on the one hand she represented the, the wild western girl. But at the same time, she was a Victorian woman who was there, after all, to meet the woman who created the Victorian era. All of the performers of the Wild West were invited to give a special performance for the Queen of England. The performers were presented to the prince, Prince Edward, and his wife, Princess Alexandra. And Annie Oakley marched up and shook Alexandra's hand. Instead of walking up and curtsying to the king-to-be, she shook Alexandra's hand. You'll have to excuse me, please, because I'm an American, and in America, ladies come first. Annie Oakley to the Prince of Wales, 1887. The most important shooting event in England was the annual rifle competition at Wimbledon, and the big-name American shooters were invited to compete. Lillian Smith was the first to arrive. She shot poorly and left in a huff. The next day, Annie Oakley appeared. Here again is Cheryl Casper. Annie does great, and she does it with a rifle. And Lillian's supposed to be the rifle expert. Annie's the shotgun shooter. So she has upstaged Lillian Smith, kind of beaten her at her own game. Annie becomes the toast of London. Some papers even said she was more popular than Cody. When a distinguished sports editor in attendance praised Annie's ladylike bearing above her shooting, she considered it the best compliment she ever received. Whether it was over Lillian or Annie's rocky relationship with Buffalo Bill, 
In late October, the London Evening News printed a stunning announcement. Annie Oakley would sever her connection with the Wild West voluntarily, following their final London performance that very evening. Two years passed. Then in February 1889, much to Annie's surprise, Buffalo Bill was planning a trip to Paris and wanted her back. Here again is Cheryl Casper. They needed her. They needed her more than they thought they needed her. And so whatever rift there was is mended. And interestingly, Lillian Smith does not go to Paris. I mean, we don't know, but it would make sense that maybe that was part of the bargain. I'll come back if Lillian goes. Over 30 million people came to the Paris Exposition of 1889. Within sight of the newly erected Eiffel Tower, Buffalo Bill's Wild West played to overflow crowds night after night. On opening night, when Annie made her entrance, she noticed hired clappers. I want honest applause, or none at all, she insisted. Annie Oakley was soon the talk of Paris. The French president offered her a commission in the army. When a French duke proposed marriage, Annie literally shot him down, putting a bullet through his portrait. Prince Wilhelm of Prussia was so impressed by Annie's skill that he insisted on participating in her act. He lit a cigarette. From 30 paces, Annie shot it away. If my aim had been poor, she later said, I might have averted the Great War. And the king of Senegal tried to buy her for 100,000 francs to destroy the vicious lions that devastate my country's villages, he said. In 1983, the World's Fair opened in Chicago and glowed with a new marvel, electric light, and showcased another, Thomas Edison's kinetoscope, a primitive device for viewing movies. In 1894, Edison invited Annie and Frank to his New Jersey studio for a test of his movie camera. In dim, smoky images, Edison's camera managed to capture Annie's performance. Ironically, the invention also signaled the end of the Wild West shows. By the early 1900s, movies would become the main source of Western entertainment. But for the rest of the 1890s, Annie Oakley and Buffalo Bill were as popular as ever. Then, at 42 years of age, and from out of nowhere, on August 11, 1903, headlines screamed of her downfall. William Randolph Hearst's newspapers reported that Oakley had stolen a pair of men's pants to buy cocaine. Annie Oakley, the most famous rifle shot in the world, lies today in a cell at the Harrison Street Station for stealing the trousers of a Negro in order to buy cocaine. Chicago American, August 11, 1903. Here's Paul Fees. Well, of course, it wasn't true. She was so outraged. It so went contrary to her character that she sued against every newspaper that had run that story. Uh, and she won in virtually all of them. Hearst had to pay her $27,000. But after expenses, she actually lost money over the course of her six-year campaign. But Annie Oakley never left the public eye. She used her celebrity to encourage women to be physically fit and taught thousands to shoot. Throughout her career, she appeared at gun clubs, defeating male opponents who doubted her skill, then taught their wives how to shoot. It was her personal crusade. 
I want to see women rise superior to that old-fashioned terror of firearms. I would like to see every woman know how to handle them, as naturally as they know how to handle babies. Here again is Mary Stang and Cheryl Casper. She was a very early advocate of women's use of firearms for self-defense. She believed that it was thoroughly appropriate for a one woman to have a, a, a gun at her bedside. And she also argued that women, especially if they had to be out and about alone, ought to think seriously about carrying firearms for self-protection. This is when she starts sounding like a feminist. You know, I think women should have the right to protect themselves and carry a gun. And she even appears in the Cincinnati newspaper article showing how to hide your gun under an umbrella so no one will know you have it. And then if someone attacks you, you can pull it out. Annie never asked for a cent from her 15,000 plus pupils. She would be repaid, she said, if the women became shooting enthusiasts. They did. One, a proper Bostonian, Cooley held a robber at bay until the police came to arrest him. She credited Annie for her success. Here again is Paul Fees. She felt it was very important for women to be able to conduct themselves without fear in a man's world. And she took steps to teach them. As I have taught over 15,000 women how to shoot, I modestly feel that I have some right to speak with assurance on this subject. Individual for individual, women shoot as well as men. Annie Oakley, 1926. Annie had once offered to lead a company of 50 lady sharpshooters to fight in World War I. But for the most part, she left politics to men. Annie Oakley didn't even think women should be allowed to vote. Although she did not espouse women's suffrage and she didn't talk about all of the issues that were important to the so-called new women of her time. Arguably, Annie was living a lot of the values that her feminist sisters were arguing for. Perhaps she didn't see herself as needing feminism to achieve what she had been able to achieve. Then, on November 3rd, 1926, Annie Oakley died at her home in her sleep. She was 66 years old. 18 days later, Frank Butler, too, was gone. They were buried beside each other in Greenville, Ohio, not far from the fairy places she had roamed as a little girl, with rifle in hand. Will Rogers, who had visited Annie just months before her death, penned a newspaper story about his fellow Western performer that could have served as her eulogy. She is a greater character than she was a rifle shot. Annie Oakley's name, her lovable traits, her thoughtful consideration of others, will live as a mark for any woman to shoot at. Here again is Virginia Scharf. There's never been anybody like Annie Oakley. There's never been somebody who had both the power of the gun and this power of a kind of sweetness and purity that makes her safe even though she's holding that gun in her hand. From movies, musicals, and television shows, to women's self-defense classes, the legend of Annie Oakley and the life of Phoebe Ann Moses reflect the qualities that best define the American character. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And what a story. Great job, as always, by Faith Garcia and Greg Hengler as well. 
And I just can't get the picture out of my head of Sitting Bull with this young lady and him calling her a little sure shot out on the trail. And that is the circuit, I should say, because sooner or later Sitting Bull had had enough of the big cities and just wanted to get back home. And I also keep thinking about all of those young ladies and women that Annie Oakley was training to, well, to take care of themselves, to not be afraid. And I think of my own girls, my wife and my daughter, and I think there are eight firearms between them in my home, and they know how to use them, and they know how to take care of themselves, and they are not afraid. What a tradition, what a story. And my goodness, eight years old, tragedy befalls her, 11 years old, three years straight, she spends as practically a slave, comes back home, earns her keep, and ultimately goes out on the road to become an international celebrity, all while trying to maintain her Victorian dignity at a time when, well, so much else was challenging her femininity. The story of Annie Oakley, and in a sense, her husband, Frank Butler, too, dying only 18 days apart. And that happens so often, folks, in great love affairs. Their stories here on Our American Stories. Sharpshooter. 